0: To the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. My name is Kimberly Simpkins, and this show is about my family's amazing journey of navigating mental illness and marriage, and much more. Psalm sixty-six, twelve says, "You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance." My goal is to share our story of the many challenges our family has experienced while living in the shadow of my husband's bipolar one diagnosis and how we were miraculously brought to a place of safety by Jesus' mighty hand. I hope to encourage those who are walking alongside a spouse or partner with mental illness while also growing in faith and devotion to the Lord. Even if you're not a person of faith, I think you will still be encouraged by our story, especially if you or a loved one struggle with mental illness. Special thank you to my husband, Scott, for his support and permission to share the story as well as allowing me to use one of his original compositions performed by yours truly on violin and a wonderful colleague on piano. Hello, and welcome back to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. Finally, I am so sorry, y'all, for the lateness of getting this episode out. I can't believe it has been two months. Life has been crazy busy around here. So let me give you just a little bit of a rundown. Also, you can check out the blog because I've got some stuff in there, too. But anyway, these last two months, okay, so, you know, my job as a musician keeps me busy. I've been doing this and that, taking part in several projects, you know my schedule is erratic, sometimes I have to go out of town, so there's that, and then there's my eighteen year old daughter she's a senior she's homeschooled, and she's been getting back into her activities lately now that the pandemic is kind of in a different stage, so that's been really good for her, but she doesn't drive, so that means that I've had to play chauffeur, and with all of that she's got her uh, college visits that she's trying to get in. We're trying to prepare for her to go to college and trying to finish up her last few classes for her senior year. So we've been busy with her and she's had some, some challenges physically and all of that. So we've been going back and forth to the doctors and things like that. So there's that. And then even though, you know, I'm talking about our family's history and, and some of the things that we've gone through as a result of Scott's bipolar diagnosis, the fact is, is that even today, we're still dealing with this. I mean, we're in it, you know? So, uh, lately, Scott has had some challenges, and over the past couple of months since I last uh, was on here, you know, he's been in the hospital, he's been back and forth trying to get medicine adjusted, dealing with symptoms, you know, we've... Uh, Had some consultation with another psychiatrist, and there's been some discussion of a diagnosis change. And so, you know, there's just been a lot going on. He's doing well. I mean, you know, he's doing okay. So he's not like in crisis or anything. Thankfully, because of all of the things that we've been through in the past and all of the hard lessons that we've learned, we've been able to handle it so much better this time. So, Things have gone pretty smoothly considering, but still, you know, it's just been difficult. And there have even been a couple of times where I lost work because he, either he couldn't be alone or, you know, when you, when you start on a new medication, it's not really good to, you, you kind of have to watch it. You know what I'm saying? And so I didn't want to have Jasmine have that responsibility. So I had to pull out of a couple of concerts, which means a loss of income, you know, so there's just a lot of things. So anyway, That's that. So, you know, I'm still a caregiver. I'm a mom. I'm the sole breadwinner. I'm the household manager. You know, there's a lot going on. And so, also in the midst of all of that, we have been discussing making some major changes in our lives and repositioning ourselves, you know, looking ahead the fact that Scott and I are going to soon be empty nesters and things like that and it's getting harder for me as a soul breadwinner to be able to cover our expenses especially right now with the inflation and our rent going up and things like that so more on that later but yeah we've been in the middle of discussing making some major life changes so it's a lot guys (laughs) it's a lot so please forgive me though for you know not coming back on here with episodes and kind of leaving you hanging but I promise you I will try to do my best going forward and being more consistent even in the midst of all of that life is actually pretty good so you know there's a lot of good things going on and so you know we're, we're fine it's just you know you can't do everything all at once so anyway all right back to the story In this episode, I'll pick up where I left off in episode four, when Scott walked out the door and off into the night. I didn't see him for a year. Jasmine and I were on one journey during that year, and Scott was on another journey on his own. So here's the story from mine and Jasmine's perspective. Things were so chaotic and stressful in those days and weeks leading up to the night Scott left. He was off medication again. I started a new job teaching orchestra in the public school, and it was stressful and overwhelming for me. Jasmine had just turned three. Scott was going on and on about how he was going to leave me and he was going to go to California and other crazy things his poor brain was putting him through. It was just too much for me. Something had to give. So I held him to his word. He was going to leave. Plus, I was tired. You want to leave? Okay, so let me help you make that happen. Through a series of events, Scott left before I could actually help him leave. My plan was to take him somewhere like the ER or shelter or the bus station or wherever. I certainly didn't want to just drop him off on the street. I tried to help him at least get a jacket or some things together, which he refused. A couple of things I did do was I took his house key and I made sure he had his ID on him. He also had a phone. I was trying to get him some money out of the car outside in the parking lot where my mother and brother were just in case things got dicey. I went to the right and he went to the left and that was that. He walked off into the night. Looking back, I guess you could say that yes, I put Scott out, but at the same time, he also walked away. But when he walked away, I didn't go after him. I felt very strongly, and I do believe this was the Lord's leading, that I needed to let him go. I needed to let him go for the sake of me and my child's sanity, safety, and peace. Maybe if he hadn't been going on and on about how he was going to leave, I would have tried another tactic. But he actually gave me the direction that I needed. So I let him go. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But I knew then... And I still know today that it was the right thing to do. So my mother and brother, they drove around to try to see if they could see him anywhere, but he just vanished into thin air. So that was that October 26 or no, October 22nd, 2006. At first, I have to say in all honesty, I felt relieved. Scott left and he took all of that chaos with him. My little apartment felt peaceful. The next day being Monday, I had to go to work. When I went to work that day, I felt 100 pounds lighter. Oh, it felt so good. But then, after a few days, reality set in, and I went through all kinds of emotions. I was angry. I was frustrated and angry with Scott for making our lives so difficult. I was frustrated and angry with God because I was like, What the heck? I thought you were supposed to be all in this marriage. I was concerned. Oh my goodness, Scott is out there in the street. He has no jacket. Is he warm? Is he hungry? I mean, it was the fall and it was getting kind of cold. So I was really concerned for him. And I was sad. My heart was so heavy. I held it together for a few days and then one day I just broke down. I couldn't help it. I tried not to, especially in front of Jasmine, but the dam just burst and I just couldn't help it. This little baby girl was so sweet. She came and put her little arms around me and said, don't cry mama. And then she started crying too. This sweet little child came and sat with me in my brokenness. I'm not really sure how much of an understanding she had of everything that was going on. She knew that daddy was gone, but I don't know if she understood why. And she knew that her mama was sad and she was trying to give me comfort. It's kind of sad when you Think about it, that your three-year-old has to comfort you when you're down, but it's also very sweet. I think Jasmine and I bonded even more in that moment. She was definitely a light. So about a week after Scott left, he called me out of the blue. He had his phone, so he I guess he just felt like he needed to call me. Let's just say he was not very pleasant. He said something to the effect of, I hope you're enjoying life without your husband or something like that. He was clearly still not well. And then he hung up on me. So after that, I stopped worrying about him so much and I went on with my life. Shoot, if he was going to be like that, then he needed to be out there. So I still went through all kinds of things in those first days and weeks. I went between, that's it. This marriage is over. To Lord, I miss my husband. I would think back on our good times when he wasn't this other person and my heart would ache. I would grieve over my marriage, feeling like all was lost. I felt like I was walking around with this big question mark over my life. About two weeks later, I finally felt something of a resolve. Maybe even a little bit of hope. Definitely a shift in my focus. Instead of lamenting over the marriage and placing expectations on that, I shifted my focus to Scott himself. Scott the man. Scott who was hurting and who needed prayer. On November 8th, I came to something of a resolve that I wrote about in my journal as I prayed to the Lord. So I thought I'd read a little bit of it to you. I'm not one to really share my journals, you know, with people. But I just felt like this really captures some of my feeling at the time. So this was November 8th, 2006, around 945 at the end of the day. Dear Lord. First of all, in the last 24 hours, I guess you could say that my heart has been going through a change. Up until 24 hours ago, I was truly ready to write off the marriage and move on with my life. I'd given up hope that Scott and I could ever get past all the drama we've gone through, and I was ready to count both my and Jasmine's losses and move on. But in the last day or two, I've been experiencing hope. And not even so much hope for the marriage, but hope for Scott to be able to turn around and get well, to get healed, and to be whole. As I examine his character more closely, I've been reminded of the purity that has existed in him, even at his worst. And through that, a still small voice has been tugging at me to continue to pray for Scott and pretty much not give up on him. Lord, I just can't give up on Scott. I just can't. I can give up on our marriage, Lord. If I had to choose, I'd give up the marriage to see Scott whole. It got to a place for me to where it is no longer about the marriage and whether or not we'll stay married. The fact is, we are still married right now, no matter what Scott says. Legally, we are married. And even if we're separated right now, we are married. I'm still Scott's wife and I have power and my position as his, in his life to pray for him and to rally others to pray for him. So that was my journal entry, at least part of it for November the 8th. And it took me, you know, some time to get to that point because I felt like the Lord was wanting me to pray for him, but I was just so tired and I was like, I don't even know if I have any prayers left and then I felt like God was saying, well, then you need to get other people to pray for him. And so you know, I just kind of felt this responsibility because he was out there and he had nobody. If if I didn't pray for him, who was going to pray for him? You know, he, his family wasn't really in the picture at that moment because there was that stuff going on with that. And, you know, it just, I don't know. I mean, it was up to me. It was like, well, I mean, I'm not going to say it was up to me. Obviously, the Lord is in control. But, he wanted to use me as a means to, you know, just keep Scott in prayer. And if I didn't have the energy to do it, to at least tell other people. So I just started talking, you know, here and there. I contacted some of our old friends from the ministry, told them what was going on and got them to pray. And so I, I felt supported and I felt, you know, held up in prayer. So so that was good. I think that November, that, that journal entry, it was a bit of a turning point So even though I was weary and I didn't know if I had enough strength to pray for Scott, like I said, God got me to get other people to pray for him so I wouldn't have to do it alone. And along the way, as time went on, God even brought other people into my life that also took up the cause, so to speak. The more time went by with no word from Scott, the more Jasmine and I slipped into our little routine. I would go to work, my mother would take care of getting her to preschool and taking care of her when she wasn't in preschool. I picked up a couple of side jobs teaching private lessons and taking freelance gigs. Jasmine and my mother got to spend quite a bit of time together. My mother, God bless her, she also took care of me. She provided meals, she gave me lots of respite even when I wasn't working by taking care of Jasmine and keeping her busy. We got her into some dance lessons and some other little activities. My mother had retired from working in the public library, so they spent a lot of time there. I visited with my family. We spent Thanksgiving with my my sister and her crew and my niece and nephew and my brother. So my mother was delighted to have all three of her children and all three of her grandchildren all together. I had my job to focus on. Not going to lie, it was hard. The kids I was teaching, they really didn't make life easy for me as a first-year teacher. Teens are smart. And they're like sharks. They can smell blood. I think it was pretty clear that I didn't know what I was doing. And of course, they took advantage of that. I shared the classroom with the chorus teacher. And while I was teaching class, it was her planning period. So many times she stayed in the room while I was teaching and got to see me floundering a few times. She was actually very encouraging and gave me lots of great tips. It took several months, but by the end of the school year, I was a much better teacher than I was when I started. During the school day, there was time to travel in between schools built into my schedule. I relished those times in the car. Sometimes I would get to my assigned school early and just sit there in the quiet. Sometimes I would get lucky and they would be testing or there would be some other kind of event going on in the elementary school and my classes would be canceled, giving me a block of unexpected time. I used that time for planning, but also for downtime. Even though the high school I taught at was challenging, I actually really enjoyed working with the fifth grade beginners. They reminded me of myself at that age, all excited about playing an instrument, and seeing their little faces light up when they figured out how to pull the bow across the strings without squeaking, it gave me joy and satisfaction. This was the orchestra program that I had gotten my own start in, and even the high school that I graduated from, so in a way, it was really neat to be able to give back. Having a full-time job meant having a full-time paycheck. Now, teachers' salaries aren't huge, but it was more money than I had been making, and after paying the bills, I actually had a few pennies left over. I was able to splurge on little activities with Jasmine. Over spring break, we went to the beach. We went to the fair on Fort Bragg, the huge army base we lived near. We would spend Saturday mornings sleeping in and telling stories and playing games. I found a church to attend, and I made some new friends. At the time, I was into scrapbooking, so I was able to go to crops and buy some supplies. That was a nice, non-musical, creative outlet for me. In other words, life went on. But in the back of my mind, of course, I couldn't help but wonder where Scott was or how he was doing. There was a heaviness in my heart over the turn that our lives took. I had no idea where he was, if I would see him again, or what to even do about it. I didn't even know what to tell people, so I really didn't say much. I still had my wedding rings on, so I I suppose people assumed I was married. Over time, I got to know the chorus teacher more and more, and sometimes between classes or after school, we would chat. We were around the same age and knew some of the same people, and of course, we had music in common. I think she even had gone to college in Tennessee, so she knew the area a little bit. We also had our faith in common. We got to talking about that, and little by little, I opened up to her and told her about my situation. She said to me, you should talk to my pastors. She connected me with them and I forged a wonderful connection with her pastor's wife that remains to this day. This woman who I didn't know from squat and she didn't know me latched on to my family and to Scott like a bulldog in prayer and she prayed. I mean like for real prayer, like intercession, on her knees, crying out to God on our behalf. She prayed so deeply, God would show her things that I knew only he could tell her. She had hope for Scott and for us, and she encouraged me in the Lord, and she encouraged me to hold on. That was a divine appointment if ever there was one. At the church I attended, I opened up a little to the pastors there as well. They were a good source of encouragement and helped keep me grounded in my faith. They also offered some good wisdom. At one point, I was considering just moving on with my life. I thought about taking Jasmine and just starting over somewhere else. Maybe I could get a good job teaching in another state and make a better living. Maybe one day I would be in a good financial position to even buy a house or something. Maybe I'll end up divorced and free to move on. In North Carolina, there was a law that in order to file for a divorce, you had to be separated for an entire year. So while I couldn't file for divorce, I have to be honest and say that I did consider it. Along with that, came thinking about what that would mean for me and Jasmine and all kinds of things. But when I talked over these thoughts with the pastors, they gave me some wise advice. Don't make any major decisions right now until you see how all of this ends. Let it all play out. They prayed for us and I was also amazed at the prayers that people prayed for Jasmine. Lord, let there not even be the smell of smoke on her. They prayed for her protection and that all of this wouldn't have an adverse effect on her. They prayed for Scott. They prayed for me. I'm sure those prayers kept me afloat and helped guide my life. Before I knew it, I had made it the summer break. Whew, I was glad. That first school year was tough, way tougher than I could have imagined. But I still had some work to do. Because I was on a provisional teaching license, I was required to take additional courses in order to go towards full licensure. So the first part of my summer break, I spent taking two courses. One of those classes was psychology of education. The professor was great and made the class fun and interesting. And he just so happened to be a clinical psychologist. And he just so happened to run a counseling ministry out of his church where he counseled people for free. He gave an open invitation to the whole class to come and see him sometime and talk if we needed it. Hmm, that got me to thinking. Up until that point, I'd never really had any formal counseling of any kind. And I'd never spoken with a real professional, someone who actually knew a thing or two about mental illness. And this was a man of faith. Best of all, he was free. So I decided to take him up on his offer. I made an appointment and I went to visit him. And we talked. Or I talked. I think I talked for a solid three hours straight. I told him the whole story. How Scott and I met, his diagnosis, the trauma he uncovered, the chaos we went through, that I had no idea where he was, all of it. I didn't even realize how much I had to get out, but he sat there and listened to it. Or at least he sat there and let me talk. I don't know if he was actually listening. I finally got it all out and he simply said, come see me again. So I did. I saw him several times over that summer. We established a pretty good rapport. He was a great listener and he asked many questions. He was pro-relationship and he didn't seem to think our situation was a lost cause. One thing that Dr. H helped me with was he affirmed to me my love for my husband. He could tell by the way I talked about Scott that I truly loved him. I wasn't so sure because I was so frustrated with him for everything, but even without meeting Scott, he seemed to be able to tap into his character just based on how I spoke of him. The same with my friend's pastor, the one who prayed so earnestly for all of us. She seemed to tap into Scott on a spiritual level, and without even meeting him, she knew that God's hand was on him. I think that's a testimony of God's care for Scott and being with him even in the midst of all his struggles. It wouldn't be long before I would see just how much God was with Scott. Over time, my conversations with Dr. H turned to the subject of Scott's family. I told him all the things that Scott shared with me about them, about the abuse he said they did to him, and how we essentially cut off all communication with them. We hadn't told them that we had moved, and although we weren't hiding, if they wanted to find us, they could have. But they didn't. I certainly had no intention of telling them that I had no idea where Scott was, Plus, based on what he told me, they were not safe people. So it was better, I thought, to just stay out of all of that family drama. Well, Dr. H wasn't so sure about that. One thing that came up between him, my pastors, and others that God brought into my life was that maybe we ought to see if we can find out where Scott is. It had been about eight to nine months at that point since we'd heard a peep out of him. Shouldn't I try to figure out where he was? I wasn't so sure about that. For one thing, I felt like the Lord expressly told me to let him go and to not go looking for him. To be honest, I personally didn't feel completely comfortable with the idea of searching for Scott. But I decided to heed these wiser voices and at least try to file a missing persons report. So, one day, I went down to the police station. I was scared to death. I watch all kinds of murder shows, and I was afraid that if I went to the police to report my husband missing after nine months, surely they would think I killed him or something. But I went there, and I told the officer at the desk that I wanted to file a missing persons report. I explained to him that my husband left back in October, and he had bipolar disorder, was off his medication, and I've not seen or heard from him since. The officer asked me some of the same questions I had been asked dozens of times already. Do you have any proof or documentation that he's a threat to himself or others? Um, no. You say he left? Yep. Well, I'm sorry, but he's not missing. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. What do you mean he's not missing? The officer explained to me that Scott was a grown man. If he left of his own free will and he wasn't a threat to himself or others, then he wasn't a missing person. He was just someone who didn't want me to know where he was. Well, shoot, even the law tied my hands. It was confirmation to me that the only way Scott and I would ever be reunited would be through an act of God. I mean, he did tell me not to go looking for him, didn't he? I went back to Dr. H with that report and shared it with some of the other more mature people in my life. They all seemed to agree that the next step was to make contact with Scott's family. That was the last thing I wanted to do. We hadn't exactly left on good terms with them, and there was a lot of weird tension there. But their reasoning was, how do you know he's not there? Maybe they've heard from him. And they might want to know that I don't know where their son or brother is. Well, that didn't really make me feel much better. So then, Dr. H suggested that I contact one family member, whoever I felt the most comfortable with. Well, I didn't really feel comfortable with any of them. But the closest one I could think of was the sibling that Scott had named when he had the memories. The one that he said was there during the abuse and was also abused in the same manner as him. Up until that point, I had not shared any details about anything Scott had said, but maybe Dr. H was right. Reluctantly, I made contact with them and their spouse. Just a little note here. I'm only going to refer to the sibling with gender neutral pronouns or as the sibling in order to protect their privacy. So anyway, I went through all of these crazy steps because I didn't want them to know where I was. I contacted them via snail mail and sent a friend of mine a postage paid envelope with a letter in it to mail from her house. I put in my email address so the siblings can contact me if they chose because I didn't want them to know where I was. Well, lo and behold, I got an email. They seemed happy to hear from me and actually made plans to visit us in person. So along with their spouse, they came from Tennessee to see me and Jasmine in North Carolina. It was a little awkward, to be honest. This particular sibling has a huge personality and can come on pretty strong. They fussed over Jasmine, spoiled her with gifts, took us out to dinner, and seemed happy to have reconnected. At one point, the sibling and I had a chance to talk. So I told them a little bit more about the things Scott had told me. Not gritty details, but enough for them to get the idea of the nature of what he had said. Well, the sibling acknowledged that, yes, their childhood was strange. They acknowledged some of the weird experiences that they had had and the eccentricity of their parents. But they weren't ready to confirm Scott's story. In short, the sibling didn't believe him. Although curiously, the sibling did mention to me that before they came to see me, Their mother had threatened to disown them. Apparently, the mother was not too thrilled about them reconnecting with me. Interesting. So anyway, this sibling seemed to want Scott back as much as me. They wanted our marriage restored as much as me. So it was kind of nice to have someone who actually knew Scott on my side. Then before they left, they made a prediction. They said that the Lord said Scott would be back in less than 30 days. Hmm. I didn't know what to make of that, but okay, this was all somewhere in the middle of August. So school started back up again, and I started my second year of teaching. One day in mid-September, Thursday, September 13th, in fact, I was at a parent meeting for my students. I had my phone off, but when I got to the car and I turned it back on, it blew up. I had an emergency message from the sibling. Scott had made contact and it had been right around 30 days after I saw them. Long story short, Scott was in Raleigh in a state mental hospital. He was mandated there by the court. He had been there about three weeks, long enough to get medication back into his system. When his mind began to clear, he reached out to his family, since their number was the only one that he could remember. The news made its way to the sibling I was in contact with, who called me with a number of where to reach Scott. And before I knew it, I was on the phone with Scott after almost a year. Then the next Friday, I took a day off from school, and I was on my way to the State Mental Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I finally saw Scott for the first time since he walked out that night. Thanks for listening so far, and next episode, I will share Scott's side of the story and what was going on with him while Jasmine and I were living our lives and then how our paths converged back together. It really is a miraculous story so I hope you'll stay tuned. Hey I just wanted to mention a couple of things real quick. Previously I've posted in show notes, and also on my blog resource page, some links to other sources of help and encouragement in marriage and relationships where one partner has a serious mental illness. One of the groups I'm personally involved with is a faith-based organization called Mental Health Strong. Their mission is to, quote, "...bring hope, resources, and support to marriages with mental health and addiction challenges." One of the ways they do this is through virtual support groups that meet monthly, a book, and virtual conferences. In fact, on May 21st, they'll be having their second annual spring conference. It's all virtual, so no need to leave your house. It will be chock full of all kinds of information, testimonials, sessions, and opportunities to connect with others walking this journey of marriage and mental illness. I'll put links in the show notes with details, so be sure to check it out. I'll be there, and I'm looking forward to it. Also, I wanted to remind you about the bonus episodes that I'm making available. In these episodes, I share way more details about our story, including getting into specifics about the trauma that Scott uncovered and how that plays a huge role in our journey. For $10 a month, you can have access to these episodes, which over time I'm sure will be growing into a significant library because it's a lot to cover. But I think it's interesting, definitely full of intrigue and drama, and actually quite healing for me in trying to make sense of some of the things we've been through. So please consider becoming a patron so you can have access to these episodes on Podbean. I'll put links for that as well. If you don't want to make a monthly commitment and just want to make a donation to express support, you can buy me a coffee. I'll put a link for that as well. Thanks in advance for considering supporting me. Every little bit helps and it covers the expenses for producing this podcast. Lastly, just a reminder to check out my blog, SimpkinsFamilyChronicles.com. I have a resource page, like I said, and more personal stories and updates there that I don't have time to include in podcast episodes. Because of the breadth and the depth of our story, which is like 22 years worth, I feel like I just couldn't put it all in a podcast or all in a blog. So I'm doing a little bit of all of it. Plus, if you just can't get enough of our strange adventures, you'll have a lot of material to keep you occupied. I also have on there a link to a YouTube page where you can see some of our family talents and gifts, as well as a link to a blog I kept while Scott was gone the second time when I didn't know where he was. So be sure to check all that out. And then there's Facebook, Instagram, and all that stuff. I'm not super great at this social media thing, but I'm really trying. So your follows and your likes and your comments encourage me to keep things going. So again, thanks in advance, and I hope to see you on May 21st. Thank you for tuning in to the Simpkins Family Chronicles podcast. You can find out more information about us along with some helpful resources by visiting my website at www.SimkinsFamilyChronicles.com. Be sure to subscribe to my email list for updates and follow me on Facebook and Instagram under Simpkins Family Chronicles. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, the adventure continues.